Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Sometimes it may seem as if you are not making a meaningful impact. Your daily routine feels unimportant, especially with everything happening in the world. You wonder if you could do more with the life that God has given you. Someone once wrote, He does the most for God's great world who does the best in his own little world. All around you are people who could be wonderfully affected by your help and kindness. God asks you to have an impact on the world by loving them as he loves them. The most meaningful work that you can do is to care for the people around you. Will you do it? Well, here in the Archbishop's Corner is where Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair inspires us to move out into the world around us to be an effective force of God's love. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for taking the time to share with us your thoughts about living the gospel and making a genuine impact on the people in the world around us. How are you on this Divine Mercy Sunday? I'm very well, thank you. Well, speaking of Divine Mercy, which is celebrated on the second Sunday of Easter, This devotion was actively promoted by St. John Paul II, who declared this to be Divine Mercy Sunday. How would you explain the meaning and the sentiment behind Divine Mercy Sunday? Well, I mean, it's the whole mission of Jesus coming into the world and the whole reason for his uh, suffering uh, the cross was as uh, an act of expiation for human sin and embracing to the uh, fullest the... uh, effects of sin, the the evil of sin, the ravages of sin heaped upon him for us all. And uh, this uh, outpouring of God's mercy as a result of this uh, act of uh, perfect obedience and love on the part of Christ, as opposed to the disobedience and rebellion uh, of uh, Adam and Eve. So we talk about Christ being the new Adam, and this is because uh, of being recreated in, in a way that leads to our eternal life. And so all of this is a tremendous act of mercy on the part of God, <clears throat> God who is all merciful and full of compassion for the creature that he has made, namely ourselves. And so the, the risen Christ, the first thing he, he said to his apostles was, was, peace be with you. And he said, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. Does so, of course, this is the heart of, our, of the sacrament of penance. Does this feast give us a hint as to how we should treat one another then? Well, absolutely. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And Jesus told a number of parables about people who were uh, about mercy. And one of them was, you know, about the servant who was forgiven a huge amount uh, and then went out and started throttling another servant Mm -hmm. who owed him a pittance. And when the master finds out, he says, you know, you wretch, how could you be so mean when I forgave everything from you, of yours. So he ordered that servant to be thrown into the jail until he paid the last penny, which is a sobering parable for us as well. A lesson in that for all of us, sure. Today also marks Stress Awareness Day, 
which focuses on raising awareness of one of the leading health problems in the world today. Stress is something that no matter what we do, we can't get away from it. Do you believe, Archbishop, that prayer has a role to play in alleviating stress? Jesus told the apostles, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give uh, these gifts of joy and peace to you. Uh, the first, Again, the first word of Christ uh, to the apostles in the resurrection was shalom, peace be with you. Peace doesn't come just material uh, well-being. There's a deeper peace that has to come from within ourselves that is a grace, a gift of God. Uh, and when we are at peace uh, with God and with ourselves and with one another, uh, then, then we can be serene and we really then are healthy in body, mind, soul, and spirit. Thursday, April 20th, the nation celebrates Volunteer Recognition Day. And volunteers are at the heart of all that gets accomplished in any parish, I'm sure. When people extend themselves for others, God's love moves along in ever wider circles. Explain to us your feelings about the importance of volunteers, not only within parishes, but other ministries within the archdiocese and the community at large, Archbishop. Well, maybe another parable of Jesus is helpful where he says, when you uh, give something to, to, to someone, don't expect any repayment because your repayment will come, you know, uh, from, your, from your heavenly father. And I think that uh, that's part of volunteerism, that we, you know, people freely give of uh, themselves. They don't get anything in repayment, at least not in kind or money, but they get the satisfaction and the joy of knowing that they're contributing to something good. In those kind of situations, not only those who are helped benefit, but the people who do the helping are benef- uh, benefit as well, uh, both in, in gra- even on just the level of, of, of human well-being. Uh, I think we're all uh, of a nature that we have the satisfaction of doing something good for, for, for our world or for other people, even though it, we're not being paid for it. Uh, and uh, that also, as Jesus would say, earns us treasure in heaven. Don't you think our parishes would take on a different complexion if we didn't have the volunteers in our parishes that we do have today? Well, yeah, certainly the church, you know, I, I always refer to it as a family of faith, but our, another way to say it is it's communio in Latin, it's koinonia in Greek, it's, it's, it's communion. And so uh, it's of the very nature of the, of the church to be uh, involved in this kind of... Uh, uh, fraternal, I guess you'd call it, association where people chip in and where people uh, volunteer and where people help one another. That is uh, the very, very source of the church. In the Acts of the Apostles, the earliest community in Jerusalem with the Apostles, we see how they organized themselves to help, you know, widows or they helped uh, serve at tables or they did this or that. They, they lived a communal, they gathered for prayer. So parish life is uh, really uh, of the essence of uh, the Christian community, the Christian faith. As I've said before, uh, you know, Cardinal Dolan in New York jokingly says that people today want to be Christ's sheep, but they think they're a flock of one, yeah. <laughs> that they're the yeah. only sheep. If you're a sheep, you have to be in a, in, a, in a flock, and the flock means you're together, and that means Sunday Mass. It means, and it means also not just running out to the parking lot to get away as fast as you can after— but to actually having some participation with other people in the life of a church. Well, Saturday, April 22nd, is the 159th anniversary of when the phrase, In God We Trust, began to be stamped on all United States coins. 
The phrase was first put on an American coin back in 1864 due to increased religious sentiment during the Civil War. In 2019, the Supreme Court rejected an atheist case to remove the national motto from all American currency. Now, this request to remove In God We Trust is unlikely to be the last, with rising numbers of the population identifying as non-religious. How can we confront secularism in our society today, Archbishop? You know, we are called by our baptism and by, hopefully, the the heritage we have received from our families, you know, that parents hand on to their children the Catholic faith from generation to generation. We receive this gift of faith, and as I said earlier about the communal aspect, not just as individuals, but as part of a church family. And um, quite honestly, uh, I, I don't. our faith doesn't depend on what's stamped on the U.S. dollar right. or on a quarter, you know, in God we trust. I think it, it speaks to a nation if it looks uh, to God for moral life and for the pursuit of justice and truth and such. Those are all, if I can use an old-fashioned phrase, godly virtues. But secular people think that they can live that kind of life without God, without religion. And uh, so I'm not surprised if someone wants to get rid of it. Uh, if they do, what does that say? Well, when the time comes, let's cross that bridge when we come to it. But, but I guess the bottom line of what I'm saying is the godliness or the trust we have in God as a nation doesn't come from what's stamped on our money. It comes from uh, who we are as a people and how we live and whether we believe or not and whether we put that belief into practice. Let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis drawn from some of the Pope's writings. So I'll read a portion of the Holy Father's address, and we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts. Um, Now, this is taken from Pope Francis's address delivered on August 16th of 2014, and it's called, Be a Sign That Anticipates the Joy of Heaven. The Pope says, The firm certainty of God's love lies at the heart of religious vocation. Become a tangible sign of the presence of God's kingdom for others, a hint of the eternal joys of heaven. If our testimony is joyful, we will attract men and women to Christ. Prayer, meditating on the word of God, and celebrating the sacraments, and life in community nourish joy, which is very important. When these are lacking, weaknesses and difficulties will emerge and dampen the joy that we knew so well at the beginning of our journey. Your thoughts, Archbishop. Yes, well, to to sustain joy throughout life is uh, sometimes easier and sometimes more difficult uh, because we all have our disappointments. I remember the line from the old uh, prayers of Our Lady Perpetual Help, Novena, you know, painful privations reverses a fortune uh, everywhere Mm -hmm. we meet, you know, and uh, that's part of life. Uh, But if so, our joy is put to the test sometimes. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have a sustaining joy that bounces back and that is deeper than any one thing. And I think that's what the Pope is saying, that joy really is one of the hallmarks of a devout life. Uh, Joy is one of the hallmarks of of true holiness, of sanctity. And so we need to to have that joy, not a silly kind of, I mean, sometimes we all can be a bit silly and that's not bad. But joy is much deeper, and uh, it sustains us and radiates uh, toward other people in an appealing way. Do you think that that's part of the Catholic vocation problem, 
that when people look at us, especially young people, they don't see us as a people of joy. Well, I don't. I might be a little bit uh, too uh, harsh. <laughs> too uh, no, not harsh, but too all-encompassing. I mean, no, people are people. There are Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims, of all stripes. You know, uh, I think you can only talk about it kind of in an individual way. I think there's much that that is very joyful about uh, living a Catholic life. I don't think that Catholic people walk around, who practice their faith. I don't think they walk around with a sour puss. I suppose there are some, but uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's it's deeper than that. Let's take a look at our gospel reading on this 16th day of April when the church celebrates the resurrection of the Lord. Our reading today is taken from John's Gospel, the 20th chapter, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. When he had said this, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. My Lord and my God, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Archbishop, what inspiration do you take away from this gospel account? Well, I think I kind of uh, anticipated it a bit in our discussion a few minutes ago, talking about uh, the uh, experience of the apostles with with Jesus saying, peace be with you, as his first words. Mm-hmm. This brings up an important element, though. This, this peace is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about the forgiveness of sins. And again, as often we uh, repeat, Jesus said to the apostles, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. And, of course, this has to do for us with the sacrament of penance. So, you know, Jesus could not simply be meaning about within the confines of your own uh, brain or your own head, uh, 
being forgiven or or not, but it has to do with the life of the church. Um, and then, of course, the whole thing about the, the doubting Thomas. Thomas then gives that answer, my Lord and my God, uh, and Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen me and have believed. And that's all of us until the end of time. So it's really a gospel for us more than anything. Um, and uh, it should in- make us realize that we live by faith, not by sight. Now, this gospel certainly, as you say, is all about believing. The disciples believed because they saw him. Thomas didn't believe because he didn't see him. He needed proof. Next time around, he got his proof. Well, I believe, you believe, so what proof can we give to others who are more like Thomas and are in need of some proof? What can we do to help them? Well, you have to remember that faith is a gift. Uh, It's a grace that's given. And some people simply uh, close themselves to it, uh, but it's always being offered. So we have to, by our uh, good example, by our prayers for other people, uh, by our witness to the gospel, by our uh, doing what Jesus commanded us to do, and then all of that entrusted to the grace of God in the life of other people who need to come to faith, that, that God will make it fruitful. Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Does this not indicate that Christ wanted his divine mercy to spread across centuries to our present time? Yes, that's the whole life of the Church. It's until the end of time. Let's look at some of the questions now that have been submitted by our uh, listeners. For instance, Victoria from Meriden says, At Easter Mass last week, The church that I attend regularly was filled with what I call Easter Catholics. I feel that it's a shame that when we have these people in the pew that the pastoral staff doesn't do more to grab their attention and invite them to come back to church. Is there any information that I, as just a regular person attending Mass, can share with our guests to encourage them to attend on a regular basis? Yes, Victoria, well, it is kind of a... Sad thing, isn't it? It's a disappointing thing to practicing Catholics who go to Mass every Sunday and then see others who just come for a holiday like Christmas or Easter. But on the other hand, at least they're there for that. Mm. In this day and age, uh, we should be grateful that they haven't lost completely their faith because many, many people are losing their faith. Uh, And certainly, if not completely their faith, at least any practice of the faith that gives any indication that they believe Because remember, believing for us is not just an idea in a book. It's not even just a creed, but believing for us means being in communion with the living Christ through the sacraments. And if you deprive yourselves of the sacraments and you deprive yourself of the Holy Eucharist, Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. Well, that's a pretty uh, sobering thought. So what do we do? Well, I think uh, I don't know that trying to uh, take this captive audience at Christmas and Easter and trying to do something that day might not have the success you you think. But I think what we have to do is we have to keep praying uh, for these people, you know. Maybe after a Mass like that, you say, Lord, it's my intention to do prayer and penance, to do some little acts of penance, some extra prayers, for it to return to the practice of the faith of each and every person who was there who normally doesn't come. And that mm. can be very powerful with God, you know. Uh, it's, sure. it's not just having a program or we just, and we have to invite. And I know that 
people find that awkward sometimes, but encourage and invite people to come. And you don't and, mean just that the priest should invite them to come back next Sunday, for instance. No, but, I mean our neighbors and friends uh, and family who don't go. Um, but it is true that the priest might uh, want to do a little more. But, you know, sometimes at Easter or Christmas, you don't want to... Hit people over the head. It's just not huh? the occasion to, yeah. to uh, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, to, you know, mention these things. So I'm not saying it's wrong to do so, but, you know, at the cathedral... When I have mass there, it doesn't occur to me to say, those of you who don't come regularly, please come. Maybe I should. I don't know. Probably the most impressive thing would be to celebrate the liturgy as a priest, to celebrate the liturgy with as much emotion and feeling and authenticity as you can possibly muster so that God uses you to be a conduit of invitation without actually even saying the words, come back next week. Yes. Mark from Avon says, I know that the Sunday after Easter is Divine Mercy Sunday, but I don't remember it being referred to as such or praying the chaplet when I was younger. Is it a new observance? Why is it celebrated the week after Easter? Well, Mark, because uh, these the um, devotion to the Divine Mercy. Now, churches always had devotion to Divine Mercy, but the particular format involving the Sunday uh, or custom or practice is connected with St. Faustina Kowalska in Poland back in the 1930s. It was only with her uh, canonization and Pope St. John Paul being from Poland that he gave more attention to this and, uh, and gave it his blessing. Now, the Pope was very, how should I say, very uh, cautious or very re- restrained. It's, he simply said that, that this Sunday can be kind of in parentheses called Divine Mercy because it's second Sunday of Easter is the official liturgical title. But for uh, those who wish to, to, to practice the Divine Mercy devotion that day are welcome and even encouraged to do so. So... I think most of our churches don't make any particular mention, uh, uh, and it's a it's a devotion. It's not part and parcel of the liturgy, uh, but it's a devotion, like so many other devotions. It it's encouraged for those who are drawn to it. Michelle from Waterbury says, "I commit the same sins over and over, and I feel bad going to confession when it is most likely I will commit the same sin. How do I say I will not sin again when I feel inside I will sin again?" Am I using confession as an excuse to sin, knowing I can confess sin and be forgiven? Michelle, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus fell three times on the way of the cross, and maybe that was meant to teach us something, that no, people don't go around committing altogether different kinds of sins all the time. (laughs) Heaven help us if we did, we'd really be bad. It's the problem is our human weaknesses, our temptations are not those of another person. And so, yes, we do commit the same sins. Uh, And like Jesus, three times falling and getting up, not because he was sinning, but because he bore our sins, we have to get up again and go to confession. Is there a humility in this? Is there even, dare I say, a humiliation in this? I think we're always being betrayed by our human weakness and our own particular foibles. But it's always getting up again and confessing it and making a real effort to avoid the occasions of sin and to try that we find our our holiness. So no, 
people generally, by their personality, by the circumstances of their life, by the, their weaknesses, we tend to do the same things. You know, an impatient person is likely going to continue to, to confess being impatient. Uh, and so we, we just have to, uh, that, that is kind of the humility of the confessional, but that's a, a remedy for sin too. But isn't it true, Archbishop, that when you go to confession and you have to, and you confess that same sin over and over again, each time you're go to, going to confession, you're receiving grace. And perhaps little by little, that grace is going to strengthen you to be able to resist just that much more the next time this temptation occurs with its ugliness in your life. Absolutely. And you know, sometimes we pride ourselves, maybe we're tempted to pride ourselves that we don't do this or that or the other thing. You know, like Jesus said in the gospel of the people who said, well, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector, you know. I don't sin like he does. Uh, But we have to remember that's by the grace of God. Just think of what we could have been under other circumstances because we know the ugly temptations that sometimes lurk in our lives. But if if we had a different set of circumstances in our life, if we were raised in a different way, in different circumstances. We have to appreciate that none of us really can save themselves. We are all capable of doing very evil things. And sometimes, you know, we see in the history of the world and societies, under the, under the wrong kind of circumstances, how terribly ugly, hateful, mean, and sinful people can be. So let, and, and we shouldn't think that we're beyond that. So let's be grateful that the grace of God is sustaining us as well as he has. And the things that we do have to work at, let's not be uh, afraid to keep asking God for help. Larry from Oxford says, I was horrified to learn that Idaho's governor, Brad Little, recently signed legislation allowing death row inmates to be executed by firing squad. The legislation will allow the new execution method if the state is unable to obtain the drugs required for lethal injections. Idaho now becomes the fifth state in the country to allow firing squad executions, joining South Carolina, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Utah. Are there any Catholic organizations working to end the death penalty? What can Catholics do to help stop the death penalty for good? Well, Larry, let's talk about the death penalty first. That What does the Church teach about this? The Church teaches that in those extraordinary circumstances, and I'll explain what I mean by extraordinary, in those circumstances where society has no other way to protect itself, the death penalty is not intrinsically evil. So if you live in a society uh, where, uh, and now I think we're talking and I'll get to this in a moment, we're talking about in the past. You know, there was a a crazed killer going around and murdering people, and there was no way to to stop him but through the death penalty. You could uh, argue that it's morally justified. But in a modern society, in the world in which we live today, incarceration, even for life, is possible. And therefore, what the Church is saying is that the death penalty is not intrinsically evil, but it does become morally objectionable when there are other ways of protecting society. And, you know, just vengeance is not a legitimate reason for for the death penalty. And so in this case, or, or in our country today, 
yes, the, the church is actively working to end the death penalty in our country for the simple reason that it's not necessary to protect society. Whether it's by a firing squad or the electric chair or any other lethal means, the death penalty in this country is not necessary in order to protect society. Is that what you're saying? Correct. So I'm not talking about the method. Just that, however it would be carried out, uh, it's it's not necessary. Pope St. John Paul pointed this out early on. Uh, Pope Francis has repeated it strongly. And, uh, you know, as a bishop in the United States, uh, together with our conference, we have argued and and we we work toward uh, eliminating the death penalty. And again, I want to emphasize, simply because to protect society, it is no longer necessary. We have a prison system even for life. And if that is what needs to be done, then that's what we do. But just to do it for vengeance... You know, it seems to me, quite honestly, this is just my opinion, but, you know, what is what is more harsh, being locked up for life in a prison or having your life put an end to, you know? So that's basically where the, the church is uh, on this matter in today's circumstances. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together this morning. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, we rejoice in this Easter season, and as we celebrate the divine mercy, we commemorate it. We realize how much each of us is in need of mercy and how we, therefore, need to be merciful to one another. Lord, in the world where there is so much anger and hatred and injustice, we pray that mercy will prevail in the human heart, thanks to your grace at work among us, that we may be instruments of mercy in the world today. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. Very interesting program, and we look forward to joining you again next week for another version of the Archbishop's Corner. Till then, enjoy this week. Thank you.